But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who has a theory that is the mirror. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? Ten things that what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reward, and you can schedule it so that the reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with pigeon pecking at the disc. Welcome back to Spit and Twitch's The Animal Cognition Podcast. I am your host, and my name is Dave, Dave Broadbeck. You want to get technical, Dr. Dave Broadbeck. I don't tend to use the doctor thing very much, but, you know, whatever works for you. Anyway, that's, I don't know why I'm telling you that. Uh, I should be concentrating on who I'm having on the, on the show today. I'm really excited about this one. This is somebody I've known for a little while, uh, as they often are. Uh, and uh, today's guest, let's move my notes over here on my other monitor. <laughs> it's... The dual monitor setup's great until you can't find something because you get too many monitors. Anyway, uh, my guest today is uh, Marissa Hushara. Uh, by the way, there's a whole story about the pronunciation of her name that uh, I know I screwed it up once introducing her at CO3, uh, and I felt I always screw up people's names. Um, anyway, this shouldn't be about me. It should be about, again, Marissa Hushara. See, I did that, and I'm going to play again. I, I Anyway. Uh, she received her uh, honors BA in psychology with a minor in philosophy. Ooh, she's smart. Uh, the University of Guelph uh, in 2006. Guelph, of course, is in Ontario, Canada. After that, she completed her uh, MSc and PhD in psychology with a specialization in comparative uh, cognition and behavior at the University of Alberta. Um, real Alberta connection in this podcast. Have you noticed that? Might have something with me being good friends with Sturdy. Anyway, in 2013, she moved to Vienna. Should sort of drop that song, ooh, Vienna, in right now, but of course that would show you how old I am, uh, as a postdoc, and built the Budgie Lab there in the Department of Cognitive Biology in the University of Vienna. In October 2018, she then started her own group, known as the Musicality and Bioacoustics Group, uh, at, the yeah, at the Acoustics Research Institute of the Austrian Academy of Sciences. Okay, look. It's great that we all have jobs. I think it's great that people have jobs, and that we all have universities or institutes, but Austrian Academy of Sciences sounds pretty cool. Anyway, um, <laughs> this institute has researchers from all over the uh, spectrum, a lot of different researchers from different disciplines, uh, and they're all studying problems uh, in acoustics. Uh, the first animal studies weren't conducted on site uh, in, until this year, actually, uh, in April, when the Budgie Lab was moved from the university to the institute. Uh, Marissa studies how different animals, including humans, uh, perceive and produce sounds. The broader goal is to understand where music and language come from uh, and uh, what other uh, similar capacities uh, exist in the animal kingdom. Um, I'm really excited about this one. Uh, I, I like talking to people from all over the place. And I, as I said, I've known Marissa for quite a while, but it's, it's just nice talking to people on different continents. I think that's cool. So we would have, uh, this season we've got a Europe and we've got New Zealand, which I guess is Oceania. I don't know. Anyway, you want to hear how somebody on the internet I found how to pronounce her name? So let's 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 play that. Hushala. See, I think that's wrong because she sent me this. Hushala. 
And I think my pronunciation is a lot closer to what Marissa sent me. Anyway, on that note, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Marissa Hushida. Marissa, you're, I'm talking to you and you're in Austria. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm not bad. How's Austria today? Like, how's, you're in Vienna. How, what's the weather like? It's been gray and miserable like it always is at this time of year. So it's not unlike, gray every day. Yeah, it's yeah. Not, not unlike Sault Ste. Marie. <laughs> um, you know, you're the only person I've ever had on the podcast who I've seen on a Netflix show where it was the Netflix uh, Music Explained one. And at the end, I was watching it with my wife and I went, I know her! So I was very excited. So, Yeah, I guess it was just a photo of me in the show. I actually didn't know about it until afterwards. And then someone told me about it and I was like, what? And so I actually watched it because I don't, I didn't know that show beforehand. But yeah, it was a photo from a workshop that I was part of. It was a really good workshop. Right. And so it made sense that they included the photo. But yeah, I had no idea until after <laughs> It's funny because like I, well, usually sort of pop science stuff is really poorly. Well, you know, this is not really very well done. Those shows are really well done. And the, the, the mind explained ones, almost every episode I go, oh, I know that guy. Oh, I know that guy. Um, so it, it's, it was kind of neat to see, to see you there. And so you're the first person I've had on the show who's ever been on Netflix. So in a way that means I've been on Netflix. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I guess we first met at CO3, probably, right? Yeah, I think so. It must have been one of my first years there. I don't right. know when that was. Anymore. Yeah, I mean, the first year that I went there was um, 2008. Okay, I, I was there. Okay, that I was. Think, I think I met you then, uh, but I was super shy, so I probably said nothing. <laughs> I think I just stood next to Chris while he talked to you and said nothing. I'm pretty sure that's what happened. It's funny, Chris. I mean, Chris is the first guest I had ever on the podcast, and I've had a lot of his former students on. Um, but partly that's so we can, you know, at, at some point make fun of Chris, obviously. Um, so let's go back before Chris, though. You did your undergrad at the University of Guelph, right? Yep. Yep. And psychology and philosophy minor in philosophy yeah do you think yeah. that's helped the philosophy do you use it at all i mean i'm not gonna, i'm not saying it's bad to be to understand philosophy i think it's i think educated people should know it but what i'm saying is does it come up in your day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week life i wouldn't say in day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week, but i do think that there is something generally there that has been helpful over the years i think uh, for people that have more of a philosophy background coming to experimental science, when they talk about their ideas, it's easier for me to sort of see where they're coming from and also um, think about how what they're talking about is relevant to what we do. But sure. yeah. I think if I went back and did it again, I wouldn't probably choose philosophy at this point in my life. So, I mean, I'd probably choose something totally different in general, though, so. Maybe music. Uh, but right? I ended up here. <laughs> Excellent. Sure. So you're 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 an undergrad, you're taking these courses in psych mostly, some philosophy, probably some electives. Um 
what made you decide that you wanted to go to graduate school and work with, of all people, Chris Sturdy? <laughs> well, um, I guess I took some psychology courses. At the beginning, I was actually doing a major in philosophy. So I guess I should really start before, before undergrad, really, because it's like at the end of high school, me and one of my friends, we were sort of these uh, amateur philosophers all the time talking about the meaning of life, you know, how 17 year olds do super do. black and white. And then it was like, okay, I got to study philosophy because it's really cool. And then I went there and it was so mostly historical focused. So I was kind of annoyed by that because I wanted to sort of move forward. So I started doing some psychology courses and yeah, it was actually a course in, um, just cognitive psychology that got me excited about doing research in psychology uh, first. Nice. Nice. But then there were a couple other courses like learning principles of learning. I love that course. The other people in my, in the course that I was <laughs> around didn't like it. And I know that, that one. For me, math was my favorite uh, um, class in, in school all the mm -hmm. time. So for me having formulas in the class, that was, that was fun, you know? So I, I liked that. And I really enjoyed that course actually a lot. Nice. Um, so at the end of my undergrad, I was like, but I was also, I also did a lot of music stuff. So I was always working on music um, sort of on the side, <laughs> always right. had music projects going, making, making albums and whatever. And so I was really interested in music. So I thought, oh, it would be cool to combine the things, right. Study nice. something um, with music and also, uh, yeah. That's amazing. Psychology. Now, see, I right? didn't know, that we, and we've we've talked before, and I mean, it's I never knew that. You, what do you play? I mean, I see a keyboard beside you. What, what do you What do you play? Um, well, I I grew up playing piano. Okay. Um, but I mainly play drums now. So I'm a I'm a drummer in a in a band. I did not. Yeah. Know. <laughs> what, what, what kind of stuff do you guys play? Uh, it's metal. Nice. <laughs> I think I knew that you liked metal. But I did not know that you played drums. I mean, I grew up around yeah. musicians. Uh, my brother's a record producer and engineer who was nominated for a Grammy last year um, yeah, or two oh, years nice. ago. I don't know. It's basically all time has lost all meaning. Uh, and I mean, I, I played bass because my dad and my brother needed a bass player. So they taught me to play. Um, but I'm not very good. I always describe it as I can play bass. I'm not a bass player. <laughs> There's a real difference. I really am not a musician. I was a mindless automaton and my brother and my father were the marionette. The, the, I was the marionette and they were the puppeteers, but uh, I grew up around music uh, all, all the time. I, I literally didn't, I didn't know you played drums though. And I can, I can see it though. I can see you just bashing away. I like it. So yeah, I actually yeah. wanted to since I was 13, but then I only actually started when I was 21, just before going to grad school. Okay. So the forming of the band actually happened just before grad school, but we're still going, but uh also, before I went to grad school, I made this dungeon synth stuff, as it's called now. It didn't have a name back in the day, but now mm -hmm. people refer to it as dungeon synth, which is just, yeah, uh, samples and synthesizer stuff. That right. It was all instrumental. Yeah. Oh, cool. But that's what I, I was doing when I was like 18 or 19. <laughs> I, I literally had, okay, this is something I, I'm, so, I'm so happy to, I love this. One of the things I really like about doing the podcast is I, I find all these things about people who I've known for a long time. And it's like, I didn't know you did this. I apparently... Because most of us are conference friends. So we hang out with each other four days a year when the world isn't collapsing um, or, you know, a week, a year. 
Uh, I mean, I think of Chris as a really close friend of mine. And I think we figured out once we, we sat down and figured it out. I think we've spent 18 days in the same place <laughs> and that's it. You know, like it, it's a weird thing. Um, so you go to grad school, you work with, with, with Chris and uh, as much as I could, I'll kid around with him. He's a pretty good scientist. Um, and when you get there, was it something that, so did you really want, I mean, you talk about the music stuff and you talk about psychology stuff, and then there's this whole biological angle to all this stuff. I see if you use the word stuff in the last sentence a lot. Um, did you find that the biology was a real challenge? Like, because we do this sort of, we do this real life science kind of stuff. Well, I guess part of me also wanted to work with animals. So I didn't get into that part, but I had lots of pets growing up and I did some sort of experiments with them too. Like I had to this one thing with my dog where I'd make her sit and then I'd hide a bunch of food and then I'd see which food she was able to find. We've all done this. I swear to God, we all, there's probably one constant, yeah. there's the one constant. Uh, when I was in grad school, we got a cat and I, I my, we, my wife brought this cat home, which I was great. And I said, you know, uh, well, we're going to give it a name and I'm going to teach it to come when I call it. And she said, you can't do that. And I said, look, if I can't do this while I'm doing a PhD, it's like, in, like I, I study animal. I can do it. I did just operant conditioning. Yeah. Yeah. Just no, conditioning. Awesome. yeah. That's, so you're working yeah, with animals. This is great. And they're, yeah. No. So yeah, all the things sort of came together. I guess my my amateur philosophy thing was also about viewing humans as just another animal, right? Sure. Instead of having a yeah, viewing them as as like somehow special. I don't know. I never really saw that. Um, yeah. No, I, <laughs> so I, mean, I wanted same place. to do something with music and animals, but I thought that that's a little bit crazy, and maybe that's not really even possible. Um, so at the time, before I went to grad school, like in my undergrad, I had to I had to choose between an honors project that was music and humans or mm -hmm. just an animal thing. So I ended up doing an animal thing because I thought it would be a better experience. Okay. And, and what, what it, was the honors project out of curiosity? It was with rats and it was actually about um, heroin addiction. <laughs> nice. So we actually... Yeah, we we got some rats addicted to heroin, and then we um, saw like what and how we could improve their rehabilitation, basically. Oh, and it okay. was really yeah. cool. That, that sounds great. Because, I, yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, the rats really had a good time, and they all were different. Like some were real casual users of the heroin, and some were really heavy users because we we allowed them to choose how much they wanted. Right. So yeah, it was really. I love that stuff. Really I, I've actually over the years been dragooned into teaching neuropharmacology. Um, and um, when you're, well, you know, about these kind of things, when, when it's early days, you just do, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Uh, so I did. And um, I, I've really got interested in all that stuff and the idea of if there's more options available, animals will choose, won't choose the, the drugs as much because there's other things to be rewarding, things like that. I like to think that in your colony of rats, crime rates went up though. <laughs> <It's just the laughs> <laughs> um, so you get to, um, Chris's lab, um, you do, uh, a lot of the stuff you were doing back then was sort of, uh, like explicitly comparative cause you were talking about people as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we did a lot of stuff with Ron Wiseman too. Yeah. Uh, continuing the, the pitch perception stuff. My PhD thesis ended up being on pitch perception, comparing humans and, and birds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we all miss Ron. We all miss Ron. Um, yeah, he was you know, awesome. He was, he was, he was something. <laughs> uh, 
he, he took, always took this weird shining to me and I don't know what it was. Uh, he met me when I was an undergrad giving a talk at a conference and he was just like, I think he thought I was odd or something. So he liked that. And he, anyway, I, I miss Ron, I miss Ron a great deal. Um, so we'll get back to the sciencey stuff in a second. How do you end up in Austria? Well, I guess, so I grew up speaking German. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents are from Germany. So I lived in a sort of Germanified household in Canada. Yes. And I always wanted to go to Germany and sort of experience what life is like there. And then I thought, okay, if I'm going to do a postdoc for a couple of years, maybe I'll do it in Germany. Didn't end up in Germany, though. I ended up coming to Austria because I was just looking around in general German speaking areas. Yes. Now I learned from coming here how different Austria is to Germany, actually. Okay. But um, yeah. <laughs> But it, but yeah, so that's, that's how I ended up here. I was yeah, interested in the group here. There's a, a larger group here in Vienna, right? Doing uh, comparative cognition type stuff. So um, the fact yeah, that you know, there's I a thought. department of cognitive ethology is just yeah, amazing. It's, it's amazing. Cognitive biology is, is the department I was in. Yeah, now right. it's behavioral and cognitive biology because it's expanded, but yeah. So great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I love that. Do you consider yourself a psychologist, a biologist, an acoustic scientist, all of the above? Uh, I, I think of those things as like genre labels, like in music. It's like, <laughs> do I really want to label something? doesn't really make sense, right? That, right? I mean, I think it's more important that you that you do work that ends up being interesting, right? And relevant in, in some way, rather than totally. trying to fit it into category i'll say the cliche thing is if i'm a musician talking about music now but seriously it's really like that doesn't make sense to, no, to label these things like I agree all of those things and none of them at the same time probably i agree with you i mean it reminds me of something sarah shuttleworth said once when she came back from she went to an ornithology congress and she came back and she said she said someone asked me what species i studied and i said i don't study species i study problems yeah <laughs> and that's i think that's also really important actually yeah. Uh, I think that was that was surprising to me, actually coming to Chris's lab, how much other people there were excited about birds. And I'd never thought about birds before. The reason that I applied to work there was because of acoustics, right? And animals. Mm-hmm. And, I, and the fact that we happened to be working with birds was cool, but I hadn't really thought about it more than that. <laughs> and so I kept... They kept doing these quizzes with each other about what what's this bird called and having all these... And then I just made up fancy names all the time, like... Uh, yellow-throated squeaker or whatever you know like see this is why we get along because the people ask you about birds all the time and you go i don't know i have no clue really okay. yeah unless it's, it's so refreshing yeah i don't know yeah because so many people i know are and it's fine to be into that i i get people are into things and that's i don't uh, there's an expression don't yuck someone else's yum if, if that's what you like that's what you like but i don't find looking at birds interesting like it just it could be because of my vision there's all kinds of possibilities but the idea of going out with a pair of binoculars and going oh that's a green legged i don't know i couldn't even make something up um <laughs> yeah something <laughs> <laughs> yeah but for me that stuff is just trivia and I'm, i've always been really bad at trivia i'm so bad at trivia i can't remember anything unless it's relevant to me i can only remember things that are conceptual i can't right. I really remember people's names too. I don't remember people's names unless I've met them. So people are like, oh, have you read this paper by so-and-so? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. You know? <laughs> what was be. it about? Then I can tell you, you know? 
<laughs> That's great. Yeah, it's funny. Now, I have a very good mind for trivia, but it, the weird thing is, I, I guess I never internalized any of the bird stuff. And I think my mom has finally learned to stop saying, what bird do you think that is singing, Dave? And I always go, I don't know, one of the ones that flies likely. It's probably not a flightless bird. Don't think it's a chicken. It's all I got. Uh, <laughs> and I mean, it's not like I don't think birds are important. I just, they're the means to an end um, in a lot of respects. So um, one of the sort of areas of research, and I mean, the, the group you're with is a super interdisciplinary group, which I think is really cool. Um, I think that's kind of the way to go in a lot of respects, because there's a lot of ways to get answers to this, to questions um, and answers you hadn't thought of. And one of the things that you, you, you've been thinking about is looking, well, just generally, I guess the big questions are some of the similarities between uh, human language and birdsong. Now, it's a huge set of questions, and it's a great set of questions. Um, what do you think? I'm just saying you can spine up. You said you've said things written down. I've heard you give talks. But what, what do you think has led to this? I mean, convergent evolution isn't quite the right word because birdsong isn't human language. But there's a lot of similarities here. So are there similarities in our life histories, evolutionary histories that you think have led to this? Or Yeah, I mean, that's the big question. I don't think anybody can really give the, give the answer to that. But I do think make something that, up, make like, something up. <laughs> I, think, I think that if we, if we do take a step back and try and view ourselves as just, just an animal species, mm -hmm. I mean, the main reason that we are talking to each other right now yeah. is sort of we, we're, we're not only giving each other information but we're also we're also impressing each other in some way right, right sure. like <laughs> well, thank you. it's it's part of building up our social status right yep. Yep. this this whole thing and sometimes you know if you're if you're talking to your partner you might be talking about stuff without it really being that meaningful if you're mm -hmm. just sort of chit-chatting and it, it could just be sort of bonding it has information but it could still be sort of bonding together like oh yes. we're just sort of chit-chatting about the, the the normal stuff and i think i think maybe that's what's going on more generally in species that do this that they're that they're vocalizing together to bond together in some way right and um yeah so it, whether it whether it also carries as much information as it does for us is is still unknown i would say i think yeah <laughs> so so it's still a social so you think a big part of this, and I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sympathetic to this kind of explanation too, when students ask me these questions, is it, it, it's, it's the fact that we're such social animals that us yeah. and a lot of birds, especially the ones that sing, are really, really social, right? So there's a lot of signaling that has to go on because we have to try to say this without Okay, everybody should know that I'm not some naive group selectionist. I don't know why I'm looking over here like there's an audience. <laughs> but it, it, it's like we kind of have to know our place and we have to communicate our place to each other, right? I think that makes like, so the, the sociality of it all makes a lot of sense. And that would lead to some form of communication that can <laughs> communicate. Wow, nicely worded, Broadbeck. That can, can communicate these kind of, this kind of information. Okay, that makes yeah, sense. I mean, it could be done in, in other ways that are not acoustic, too. And I think that's something that people haven't maybe explored enough, because it could be that lots of animals are doing this in, in many yes. other ways. And we're, we're maybe too focused on the acoustics. I like acoustics, so sure. I enjoy the path. But I think, I think, yeah, there could be many other ways that 
How animals are doing this? How? Like visually, uh, okay, just sort of, um, or anything like with scents or just, yeah. just yeah. I guess I mean I always think of bees, but when I I mean the example again, if a student asked me that, I would say, well, dance language honey bees. We talked about that last week, except that's I. It's so different. I mean, I, I don't. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I guess that has, that has a specific purpose it's not necessarily for for bonding with each other right it's more for yeah. for giving information about where something yeah the, is located. The, the bond's already there because they're all super sisters yeah. and that whole thing yeah fair enough um one of my favorite results of of of, of the work that you've done is the stuff on uh, sex differences in budget regards that you can just call them budgies budge regards little parrots yeah. you just call them budgies okay let's Some go with call them parakeets but parakeets technically include lots of other little parrots too Oh, okay. Um, the sex difference stuff is cool. I, I, I find sex difference stuff interesting. Just, just always have. I don't know why. Um, I took a course as an undergrad called the Biological Basis of Sex Differences, and we looked at all kinds of animals, including humans. And I guess that's where the my interest comes from. Way back in before you were born. Um, and uh, this stuff, but the response to rhythm. Um, and first of all, how did you find? And I'll link the paper in the show notes. So if people want to read this, they can. But how, first of all, how did you find that there was a sex difference in the, in, in the response to rhythm in these budgies? And secondly, what does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> so um, what we did basically is we, we, we actually did the same thing with humans and with budgies. We created a preference room. It had two little mini rooms. And in each, each room, um, had a sound playing. One of them was a rhythmic sound and the other room had a sound that was the same uh, actual sounds, but they weren't put together in a rhythmic pattern. So they mm -hmm. were, they were offset from each other in, in a random way. So they sounded a bit like a popcorn machine or something, just little random bursts of sound. Right. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we found that both uh, humans and the female budgies like to spend time on the rhythmic side. And right. so actually at first what we did is we just, we didn't have any expectation about the, about female budgies yeah. liking rhythm and males not. Right. So we ran, we ran half males and half females and we thought that the budgies just didn't care. But then when we did separate it by sex, then we saw suddenly that the, um, that the males were actually spending more time on the non-rhythmic side and the females on, on the rhythmic side. And I guess for budgies, it kind of makes sense because the males are the ones that sing for the females. So mm -hmm. it's not, um, yeah, there's, there is a sexual dimorphism there already. So males sing for them and they, they do this head bobbing movement while they sing. Um, so there might be rhythmic information just in their, in their song that the females are attracted to. Right. So we've actually done follow-up tests since then where we created a new apparatus with three different perches that where the birds can trigger what they want to listen to. And there we had it so that the third perch actually is, silence so they can also choose not to listen to anything if they don't like the sounds so there then we found that the males actually would listen to nothing over either of the types of sounds wow. and the females would still listen to the rhythmic sound and they would actually sit on the rhythmic perch for a really long time too nice. so they they would uh they yeah they stayed a long time and listened for a long time and then we also got into what they liked about the rhythm so we we had um different versions of the stimuli yeah. where they it was a, so for example, we created rhythms that didn't have a steady beat. The original one, we had a steady beat in the rhythm 
and it repeated itself. So it was a repeated pattern. Right. And so we created one version that had that had a repeated pattern, but it didn't have a steady beat. So it was like chaotic, but then it would repeat itself. Yeah. And then we had another version that had a steady beat, but it would constantly evolve. So it would it would never repeat itself. It was always new. And they, they loved both of them. So they found both of these things really interesting. So it seems like they can pay attention to the beat. And I mean, what originally motivated us was that uh, so studies looking at other parrots that found that they could uh, synchronize to beats. So there's mm -hmm. lots of videos now on YouTube of parrot, parrots yeah. dancing to music, right? Yeah, yep. Snowball was the original one where uh, researchers went to his house and actually sped, sped up and slowed down his favorite music and found that he could still move along accurately to the beat. And there's been lots of studies since then. One with budgies and operant boxes where they were trained to peck along with the beat. And so, hmm. yeah, budgies, I think, I, think uh, I think I've read that general, paper. Yep. Yeah. The parrots in general just have, have this kind of rhythmic skill. And so now yeah. we're trying to figure out why. And so maybe it has something to do with, with their own song right. and dance, literally. <laughs> right. Literally. Yeah. Song and dance. Yeah. So, but the, the thing that fascinates me about this is that the males would prefer to just be left alone. <laughs> like acoustically, it's like, no, I'd rather be over here where it's quiet, as you just said. Yeah. Right. So, but they're rhythmic animals because they do. It just seems odd to me. I mean, I, I can't, it's very odd. It's a very odd, it's a cool result. My favorite results are odd. Um, I wonder why the males wouldn't be interested. I don't know. It could be seen as competition, right? If it's from another male. Okay. Okay. So it might be something like that. That makes um, sense. That makes sense. Or, okay. or it could be seen as, as another male trying to court them. I mean, they do do male, male courtship sometimes. Sure. Yep. Um, maybe, maybe it's just not invited at that time. Okay. Now see these, that's all this is fascinating because I mean, I, I, I've liked this. I mean, this all goes back to, and you talked about Ron's work that well, Chris and Ron did way back when, and it's all, this is just the evolution of it. And um, I really like that. Uh, that sounds like I was dismissive and it that wasn't meant that way. Um, good science breeds more good science and then it, which also breeds more good science, et cetera. So um, I, I love this kind of stuff. It, it makes me, um, I get really, See, it's funny, maybe you've noticed this season, there's been a lot of people who study things like this. And to me, it, it, it just fascinates me to no end. Um, I can't read those things that you guys can all read. Uh, those, Jen Foote told me they aren't sonograms. They're something, I don't know what they are. Are they are sonograms? I can't remember. Anyway, I've been with Chris and he says, you can see here that this does this and this and Lori Bloomfield. And I, I, I can't, I can't do that. I think it's cool. Um, uh, your group has also pioneered uh, the use of uh, segment-based analysis um, relate, and related to uh, bird communication. So, and they're kind of like syllables, right? In human speech. That's the, what you're saying, right? Yeah. 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 So I guess, I guess the main thing there is that most of the time when people study animal vocalizations, they treat mm -hmm. silence as the marker of the end of a vocalization. So, yes. or the end of a unit in vocalization. So even in a lot of um, songbird songs, they, they have little silences between different notes, it's called, right? And then, um, so people treat these, these notes that are separated by science as being units. And for some species that works really well because they'll repeat the same unit over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, that was the case for the chickadees, right? They, they, 
that you're working with and that, yeah. that I work with with Chris, that they like with their chickadee call that they have A, B, C, and D notes. Yeah. And they, they, yeah, they consistently produce these notes, right? So they do seem to be a unit in some sense. But for some species like budgies, they produce a lot of units that are different every single time. So they've yeah. just been clustered as complex. <laughs> they yes. have one kind of unit of sound that's complex because every time they produce it, it's different. And the thing is, if we look at human sounds, so when we, when we make a burst of sound, it's often something we never make again in our whole life because we can say an entire sentence without uh, taking a breath. And so some things we say over and over again, like, how are you or something like that? But then there's other things that we, we don't say over and over. And even for things like, how are you? There are subunits in there, right? Yes. That we can break out. Um, yeah. And so what we did with the budgies is try and look at their vocalization as if they were uh, humans in that way. So we, yeah. we looked at whether we could find uh, subcomponents and we found that they, they had similar components actually to the humans, except faster. Right. So their vocalizations are faster. They also hear things faster. They can resolve acoustic information faster. Uh, and if you slow down their vocalization, you can hear all the crazy stuff that's actually going on in it. Um, and yeah, so we found these units. And now, yeah. So now we can try and see if the units are meaningful or used in certain contexts. Or Right. Yeah, that, that, that's that's going to be a matter of a lot of number crunching and a lot of just long periods of uh, observation and seeing what goes with what, I guess. Right. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, uh, that would be one way to do it with lots of, lots of data could use some machine learning techniques nowadays too, I guess, to try and break that down if we have enough data, but, um, I guess we need to do a bunch more recording probably until we're at sure. that point. But yeah, that is um, something yeah. that we would want to do. We're so also doing some stuff where we, we are making artificial budgie vocalization. So there's some people at my institute that they make artificial speech. So that we're making artificial budgie vocalizations and testing them with, with those, um, which has been pretty interesting so far. They actually seem to like the artificial sounds. So, Oh, um, that's so cool. Test them with different patterns that unnatural patterns versus natural ones and stuff from their vocalizations. And uh, I love that. Like. And that's still, again, it, you can see that this is the maybe great grandchild of this stuff that pioneered way back in the day and it, it's just it's so different but i can see the lineage it's so it just i love seeing how people over their careers have you can see the influences where they come from and then you can see people doing their own thing but it's you can also i'm kind of rambling here but i i guess i just love the idea of preference tests and and i can it's just so cool I, i'm i'm lost for words i think it's just so neat looking at the artificial and the real stuff um so this must involve a lot like a real interdisciplinary group which is like your group is really so what kind of expertise do you have in the group uh well there's it's it's the acoustics research institute and actually the most most of the people there are or maybe i shouldn't say most but a large proportion of the people, so probably actually less than half, but still are mm -hmm. mathematicians. So they they often give talks where I get lost within a few minutes, uh, which is really hard sometimes because I really would like to understand some of the stuff in in more detail. But it's actually I'm I'm really really enjoying being in this environment because I, I think 
I mean, it's it's totally different than any other environment I've been in before. Everybody everybody is doing something different. Um, so we also have people doing psychoacoustics, doing stuff on spatial acoustics, and also um, some stuff more, more applied stuff on the use of like cochlear implants, and then also um, we have people doing phonetics, so looking more linguistic yeah. type stuff. And then we have some other people doing other modeling of, um, of yeah, different, different acoustic stuff. Ever need. So when so, the aliens yeah, come, so your group is going gonna, is gonna to help us communicate with them, right? <laughs> I hope so. That would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's I mean, a nature paper. <laughs> we could segment their vocalizations if they have some. Or exactly. maybe they use another another sensory modality after all. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, it must be kind of, clearly it's very stimulating working in an environment where you've got all these different things happening. It must almost in some respects, except you have a lot more responsibilities in some respects, it must almost feel like you're in grad school in a way, right? Cause that, what you're describing reminds me of like, I go to a talk and go, I don't get this, but I think it's cool. Uh, is, is it, does it feel kind of like that in a way or? Well, I don't know. I mean, I feel like in, in grad school, actually, it was easier to understand for me to understand the talks than, than right. it is now. Although in grad school, I often did go to computer science talks. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Were, you're in an academic environment. I didn't understand either. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, no, I've always enjoyed actually that. I've enjoyed trying to push push the limit and try yeah. and see what I can understand. Because sometimes even if I just super superficially understand something, I already have a good sense of how it could be maybe useful for me or, or what people in that area are doing yeah. and later see how that connects maybe with what I'm doing. Right. And so I think it, it helps sort of keep you constantly learning about stuff. And it also means that whenever you need somebody who's an expert on something, somebody probably yeah. is or knows somebody who is or something. So it's right. really easy to, to find people to collaborate with on, on more on yeah. topics that you can't really do yourself. Exactly. So that's really awesome. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, this, it just sounds so exciting. So, and I guess I want to just get a handle on the notion that like, so basically, so you don't, you don't have to teach any classes or anything. You just do science all day. Yeah. I don't have to teach classes though. We can. Okay. So um, our Institute it's at the, uh, Austrian Academy of Sciences, which is kind of like Max Planck in in uh, Germany. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know about it, but sure. it's like the Austrian version. It's kind of like we have all our students are actually affiliated with the university and that's where they're doing their degrees. I see. Uh, and they just come and do their work with us. And so we're also affiliated with different universities. There's, I think, a whole bunch of different universities that people are affiliated with. And um, then we we teach at those different universities but it's not, we can. So it's part of our, our, our job at the academy that we can teach at the university it counts as part of our job time, Right. but uh, we don't have to. So we can sort of choose, choose how much teaching we want to do, which is Just, pretty um, nice. So, <laughs> and it's all done in German? Depends. So most of the undergrad stuff, yeah, but most sure. of the higher level stuff is actually in English often. Yeah, sure. Because so, the, pap the papers are in English. Yeah, I mean. Papers are in English and people have to start practicing giving yeah. talks in English and stuff. Sometimes it's sort of a mixture where people speak a little bit in German, but sometimes you also have international students. I mean, 
because Europe is so small and there's so many languages, there's a lot of people often that can't speak German that, that are around, right? Especially at higher levels. So right. then it's, it's easier if you do it in English. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that even happens in Canada. I, I know a friend of mine, uh, well, you probably know Sylvain Fisset, uh, and Sylvain, when he was in grad school at Laval, came to U of T for a term because his supervisor said, go somewhere and learn how to speak English. Because <laughs> you're going to have to do, I mean, he, he works in French, but he writes in English, uh, except for his yeah. insert grants. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's it's a whole other level for the students to have to write everything in English, all their theses. It's, yeah, writing a master's thesis is the first sort of big thing you've ever written. And it's also in English. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. By the yeah, way, do this in a foreign level. language. <laughs> another level of difficulty. Yeah, I don't think we realized how privileged we are to speak, to be just dumb luck of being uh, Anglos. Um, one of the things I like, I've been trying to ask everybody this season is, if they have any advice they would give to say current undergrads or grad students who are interested in studying these kind of things, do you have any th thing that you would say that people should do or shouldn't do when they're in grad school or applying or? Yeah, I guess I, there's always infinite things to say. And I guess it's <laughs> probably for, for every person. I mean, I've listened to a few of the, the past podcasts mm -hmm. and people are talking about how important it is to find a supervisor that suits you. I think yeah. a lot of the advice that's been said has been been really good. But I think one thing that I, I didn't hear yet, though I, I only listened to a few episodes, sure. is um, that that it's important to sort of figure out how, how you work best. Because every single person works differently, mm -hmm. right? And it's, I don't think, I think it's important not to think that you have to work a certain way. Yep. And that that you know, if, if you work seven days a week, then you're going to succeed. Um, <laughs> as lots of people have this idea that if they, if they yeah. just keep going, then it'll, it, that's the only way to, the only way to do it. And I think uh, for different, different people, different types of working is better, right? So some people take a long time to sort of warm up to working. Yeah. They, they need it space around when they're going to do some, some deep work just to sort of get into the zone. Mm -hmm. And then other people, uh, can't uh, spend too much time on one thing and need to sort of work in bursts. And I think it's, it's, it's good to use the time to try and identify yeah. what type of style is important for you, right? And also when you work, some people are good at working in the morning. I'm more of a working at night type of person. And the sooner you just give in to that, I think the better, right? The sooner that you acknowledge, like, I'm just not a person that's good at working in the morning. Yeah. I'm going to work at night instead. I think that's good, right? Because you, then you work better and yeah, everybody's happy. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because, I mean, when you mentioned that this is a really good piece of advice for people. And if you can find the supervisor who understands this, because not, they don't all. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I did that's have important. a, yeah, I, I had a discussion with my supervisor early on in my master's. And she said, what did you do last night? And I said, I watched a hockey game. And she said, You're, you should have said, I worked on my method section. I said, you're going to get the method section, but there was a game on. Um, yeah, you know, that's and, really important to know when when is the right moment to take a break, right? Yep. And know what type of things that if you miss out on in your life are going to affect how well you work later. Because often if you push yourself when you don't want to be working, you can spend five hours doing something that you would do in 15 minutes if you were yes. just more motivated, you know? Oh, exactly. So. Exactly. I mean, I, I and it's funny because I like working in the morning. 
Um, and I yeah. mean, you know that Chris likes the morning. Um, I get yeah. like, I get, I get like, he retweets things from the night before and it's clearly four 30 in the morning when he's doing <laughs> this and it's like, dude, sleep. Um, but that's how pe- different people work different ways. And, you know, uh, I, when I was department chair, people would say you're up at six o'clock in the morning, sending emails. It's like, yeah, but I'm going home at one o'clock in the afternoon, dude. <laughs> so this is, how, this is how I do things. Um, yeah. yeah. I think it's really important. Yeah, it's the same now. I, I often show up at work in the early afternoon, but then I'm usually the last person there and have to sit, turn on the alarm system. I mean, yeah. it works for me that way. <laughs> and it really has worked for you because you're, I mean, uh, uh, you got a hell of a CV. I'm just going to say that it's pretty impressive. <laughs> um, I just want to say that, I mean, this has been a real, this has been real fun for me. Uh, it's nice always talking to people. It's nice talking about cool science. It's also nice talking to people I like I get along with, but finally uh, it's just fun to talk uh, to you. Uh, I would ask you right now, do you have anything you want to plug anything you want to tell us about? How do we follow you on the internet? Are you looking for students? You can say, this is a free form part where you can say anything you want. Um, I don't, I, <laughs> don't really know what to say for this i mean okay. i have i have all the normal things like twitter and whatever but i don't I have all the normal things no, that's great if, if i had a <laughs> subtitle of this episode and, and um yeah all the basic stuff is there i tweet okay, cool. stuff once in a while i'm never on twitter unless i have something to tweet right which is once a month or something <laughs> Uh, that I think of it often I do things and then I don't think of that I could have made a tweet like I could make a tweet about this podcast so I should uh, probably do th- that th- there, will there will be one <laughs> you can retweet um, <laughs> you know what so you're actually living what, what, what I think people used to call a normal life rather than the weird life that some of us live where oh, I better put this on the internet so you, it sounds like to me like you're healthy uh, so that's a good thing um, you know <laughs> On the other hand, you can follow me on Twitter at dbroadback if you want to listen to other podcasts I do. There's a broken area, uh, which is me going and doing errands with my wife. There's Isabel. Uh, there's, uh, let's see, how about best episode ever, which if you want to hear about retro television. And finally, if you want to hear two overeducated guys talk about Mad Men every Friday, tune in to Sterling Cooper David Steve, uh, scdspodcast.com. Uh, on that note, thank you so much for this. I really had a good time and uh, thank you for taking time out of your day. And uh, I'm glad to find out that you like working in the evening because I know it's uh, getting close to dinner time, isn't it? So you should probably go have some schnitzel or something. Isn't that what you do in Austria? Yeah, I love schnitzel and I've always, I've always cooked schnitzel. Uh, my mom made it and I learned how to make it and yeah, grew up eating it. Yeah. And but, they, um, yeah. as I said, I'm a late person. So actually I only just had lunch a little bit before. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yes, so. <laughs> so this works good. I was afraid I was, I was messing with your day, but now if I did, I'm not. Thanks again. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. But not everyone believes that biology is destiny. For many scientists, it's your experiences in life that count. Your upbringing, your education, your environment. Chief among these scientists is psychologist John Watson, who offers a theory that is the mirror opposite of eugenics. Pigeon learned that pecking the disc produced a reward. Then the behavior of pecking could be studied in relation to how often that reward was offered. Or in Skinner's terms, what was the schedule of reinforcement? main thing is what, what we call schedules of reinforcement. Reinforcement is what the layman calls reward. 
and you can schedule it uh, so that a reward occurs every now and then when a pigeon does something. We usually use a response with a pigeon pecking a little disc, a little spot in the wall, and you can reinforce with food. But you don't reinforce every time. You every perhaps every tenth time, or perhaps only once every minute, or something like that. There are a very large number of, of schedules, and they have their uh, special effects. same genome and so they would try to so we are a, a clone if you want and, and we try to help our um, gametes to go into the next generation in this case is a conflicting system and um, for that reason this is very interesting this is a parasite and this is um, one of the many hosts that is feeding this baby which doesn't look at all like the um, like the host and nevertheless they manage to use precise trickery to make them do what they want. <laughs> 